Next Sunday, we'll return to the practice that we've had for a number of years now in our church, that is of preaching consecutively through um, the Psalter, um, picking up next week um, where we left off last time with Psalm 54. Um, But today, um, Pentecost Sunday, um, this Pentecost Sunday in the year of our Lord 2022, we will explore uh, one of the most important passages really in all of the scriptures on the theme of Christian worship, which also happens to be the next passage in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. And that passage is printed on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to uh, read along as we go through it. In this passage, the apostle who is writing to the Hebrews describes what is now new and different in this new epoch of God's people that has been initiated by the resurrection and, even more importantly, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to his Father's right hand, where, as the apostle has argued at some length, he now serves as our perfect high priest forever before the face of the Father. What is different now, according to the apostle, is that by the power of the Spirit, we now enter into the heavenly places themselves in our worship. We go there not alone or on our own efforts, of course, but through and with Jesus, who has ascended before us and has poured out his Spirit, that his Spirit might lift us to where he is as we worship each Lord's Day as we enter, the apostle argues, directly into the inner courts, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, the face of God himself. In other words, the apostles arguing this passage, in Christ, in Jesus, we do not stand outside and admire the fire of God's presence from a distance as the people of Israel once did. Now he argues in Jesus, Christians, Christian Lord's Day worship means to enter in, to go into the consuming fire of God. Listen now, friends, to God's holy and inerrant word from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. Here is what the apostle says as he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in 
festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who was speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake, not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true. And it is given to you, friend, because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest it, that we may embrace and evermore hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The epistle of Hebrews, you'll remember, if you go back to the very beginning of that letter, begins with the astounding declaration that God, having spoken previously uh, in the centuries through his prophets, has now spoken in a definitive and climactic way through his Son, who has now, after his incarnation, death, and resurrection, ascended into God's own presence. Long ago, the apostle starts his letter. It's remarkable how he begins. No Hi, how are you? Here's who I am. No, long ago, at many times, the apostle declares, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that is the son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, the apostle says, he, that is this son of God, the one who is God's radiance of God's glory, who is the imprint of the father's nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, he sat down. The apostle says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Hebrews begins, in other words, with the glad tidings of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven's courts. And indeed, the centrality and importance of the ascension of Jesus is in many ways the primary argument of this entire letter. Hebrews is the letter of the ascension of the risen Christ. Jesus has gone into heaven, the apostle argues, and this makes all the difference in the world because he is now fully human and in our flesh he there serves on our behalf as our high priest before the living God. And because Jesus is in heaven, the apostle argues that means that heaven is where the real action is in the world. Heaven is the place where Jesus reigns, the apostle says. Heaven is the place where his blood is presented before God's face to guarantee the forgiveness of our sins. Heaven, the apostle argues, is where Jesus is an anchor for us, a steadfast anchor for our souls, holding us fast in union with God. Heaven is where everything happens, according to the writer to the Hebrews. And this apostolic argument about the centrality of the activity of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, in the courts of heaven, has not only a theological quality, but also a polemic quality, if you consider the context in which it was written. Because you must remember, the epistle to the Hebrews was written during a time when the temple in Jerusalem was still standing and still being practiced and used on a daily and weekly basis. Every Lord's Day and particularly every Sabbath day in Jerusalem, sacrifices were offered for the sins of Israel. All that was taking place while Hebrews was first written and read by the people of God. When the, when the words of Hebrews were first written and read, the blood of sheep and goats were still being poured out on the altar in Jerusalem, in the glorious temple. And the priests were still coming out of the holy place and proclaiming that because the blood had been thrown again on the altar, the forgiveness of sins were true for the people of Israel. This, all of this was taking place while Hebrews is written. Remember that the temple in Jerusalem was magnificent. It covered acres and acres of land. Its size was massive. Its beauty was overwhelming. Its wealth was astounding. It had taken decades and decades to build and perfect and beautify. It was truly one of the wonders of the ancient world. To enter the courts of the temple was to be overawed by its magnificence. And you can understand, therefore, if the earliest Christians... Perhaps some of those who received this letter or some of those who trusted in the Lord on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And perhaps you can understand if some of those earliest Christians looked around and compared their tiny, tiny, right, handfuls of people, their tiny and unimpressive worship services each new Lord's Day that took place in small homes and dark caves, candles, empty fields where they could not be found, 
if they compared all of that to what was taking place just over there in the temple in Jerusalem. The crowds that mobbed the temple courts, the sound of the songs, the the smell of the sacrifices, if they compared what they were doing to what was happening at the temple in Jerusalem and wondered, were we right to abandon all that, all that glory and beauty and power? Could we actually be wrong? You see, the insistence of the writer of the Hebrews to these earliest Christians is not to trust their eyes, not to trust what they can see with their physical sight, but to see with the eyes of faith and therefore see that actually what is happening in Jerusalem is now irrelevant because Jesus Christ, God's own son, God's own lamb, God's own sacrifice has already entered the gates of heaven. And by pouring out his spirit on those who have been baptized in his name, he has actually united them to himself and drawn them into the place where the action is, into heaven itself. But it could not be seen with their physical eyes, only by faith. Remember, faith is evidence of things unseen. Faith looks forward beyond the physical sight of our eyes. And then, that, as that whole argument is built throughout the letter, we find, in many ways, a climatic kind of masterstroke to the apostles' argument in our passage this morning. That because of this, Because of Jesus' entrance into heaven and our union with him, this means, according to the apostle, that Christian worship, no matter its outward appearance, no matter how small and unimpressive it may seem, Christian worship, the apostle argues, is always by the power and presence of the Pentecostal Holy Spirit of God. It is always heavenly worship. That's what he argues. Look at the argument that goes through the passage here. In verses 18 to 21, we read this. The apostle begins his argument with these words. He says to his readers, For you have not come to what may be touched. What can be touched? The temple, the the animals, sacrificed for their sins. Even as he points, Sinai itself. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heaven, I'm sorry, made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, the apostle reminds them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You see, here the apostle is evoking the dramatic encounter that took place in the chapters of Exodus uh, between the people of Israel who had just been delivered from slavery and the God who had delivered them at the mountain of Sinai, as we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning from Exodus 19. The emphasis in that Exodus account and in the chapters that follow is, of course, the unapproachability of God. 
That is the, the emphasis. The people cannot even touch the mountain, the foot of the mountain, let alone go up it to where God is. They are threatened and kept away from that place by the pain of death. They will surely die. Only Moses and Aaron with him can go up on their behalf and experience God's presence in his holiness and power. But now, the apostle argues, a greater Moses has come. And in this ascended Jesus... The apostle is eager to announce all those who belong to him are now safe before the face of God. For they can go with him as he has ascended into God's presence. And indeed, as the apostle says in our gathered worship, beloved, you do not come to what may be touched, the apostle says. But you have come, he says, to mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And, he says, you have come in your worship to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, what do we come to when we gather for worship each Lord's Day? Yes, we're we're just here in the sanctuary, and it all seems pretty normal and even mundane, perhaps. But what is really happening according to the Scriptures According to the apostles here in Hebrews 12, the apostle here in Hebrews 12, when Christians gather in Jesus' name on his day, according to his command, we ascend to heaven itself. That is where we are even now, at this moment. We have come to the true mountain of Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem. In our worship, the apostle says, we have joined in with the angels, with innumerable angels, uncountable numbers of angels who gather around the throne of God in festal gathering, right? Rainments of light and beauty. Our praise joins in with theirs, with these heavenly creatures who have lived since creation itself before the face of God, continually singing praise to his name, crying, holy, holy, holy before him. And in our worship, it's not just the angels, the apostle says. No, we have actually come also to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is, in our Lord's Day worship, we are surrounded by the souls of those who have already died in Christ. And have been gathered to heaven's courts as they worship and wait for the resurrection of their bodies on the last day. They also are with us as we have gone into heaven. And of course, at the center of what is taking place in heaven is God himself. The judge of all. The one who was previously unapproachable. Whose very presence would burn alive the people who came before him. 
And why can we be before the face of God? It is because of Jesus Christ. Our man in heaven, the mediator of the new covenant, and his blood, which has made a safe path for us into God's presence. For without that shed blood sprinkled, friends, make no mistake, we would surely die. We could not do this without the blood of Christ sprinkled over us. This, the apostle argues, is what is taking place in Christian worship. This is what is happening. This is what is happening whenever those who belong to Jesus gather on the Lord's Day to pray and sing and hear the scriptures read and preached and to eat and drink bread and wine according to the institution of Christ. This is the mystery, the glorious hidden mystery of Christian worship. And it does not matter a whit, the apostle was saying, whether this worship happens in a glorious cathedral or an empty field. Christian worship, friends, has taken place over the centuries in catacombs, in shacks, on the decks of ships at sea, in all kinds of sanctuaries, large and small, built for that purpose, and in any number of other places. And in every case, what the apostle is saying is that that worship, when it has happened, has been a real participation in heaven itself, where Jesus is leading us in the praise of his Father. Friends, this, by the way, is why the classical Protestant tradition of the church has always emphasized a simplicity, a simplicity in gathered worship. The same kind of simplicity that our own congregation participates in. Right? It's not complicated what we do here every Sunday. It's just hymnals and a piano for singing. Just simple written prayers spoken together. Nothing elaborate, nothing crazy. Just a normal human voice reading and preaching the scriptures without any adornment or visual helps. Just simple bread and wine, taken, given, received, eaten, and drank. The reason for that simplicity isn't just because we like simplicity in and of itself. It's because the externals of our worship are not themselves the point. They are just the avenue, the spirit-ordained avenue by which we participate in the real thing. And the real thing we believe is taking place in heaven, where we by faith ascend every Lord's Day by the Spirit. And the Protestant tradition has always held that if the externals of worship become overly elaborate and complicated and even impressive, if they have too many bells and whistles, too much noise and flashing lights, then the externals of worship can actually give the impression, the unfortunate impression, the very unfortunate impression to the worshipers that those externals are what really matter and thus distract and take away from the power of the real thing which is taking place in the courts of heaven. Now, friends, the Protestant tradition has always argued that you may not In fact, you cannot judge Christian worship by its outward appearance. 
It does not matter if it is impressive. As long as it is faithful, as long as it is practiced in accordance with the teaching of the scriptures, we hold that even the simplest worship service is a true participation in heaven itself, in the living, the city of the living God, joining in with innumerable angels in festal gathering, surrounded by the spirits of the righteous made perfect, worshiping before God, the judge of all, in and with and through Jesus, God's Son, whose blood is sprinkled to pave the way into heaven. And this Pentecost Sunday, it is worth emphasizing that this miracle, and I use that word intentionally, it is a miracle, friends. Do not ever believe that Presbyterians don't believe in miracles. Yes, we do. This miracle that takes place each Lord's Day in our worship, it is a work that is accomplished by the person and presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That is how it takes place. That is the only way that it takes place, by the unction and blessing of the Spirit. For it is the Spirit who unites us to Jesus and lifts us into his presence. It is by the Spirit that we go, friends, to where Jesus is. Calvin puts it this way. He says, let us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above all our senses and how foolish it is to wish to measure his immeasurableness by our measure. What then our mind does not comprehend? He says, yes, this is almost too much for us to wrap our minds around, that the Spirit lifts us to heaven, that we truly participate in Christ and in the worship there. What then our mind does not comprehend? Calvin says, let faith conceive. If you cannot figure it out in your mind, that's fine. Believe it, trust it by faith, that the Spirit, he says, truly unites things separated in space. Space is no impediment to the mighty Spirit of God. In other words, though our worship appears plain and ordinary, it is the Spirit who unites us to the courts of heaven. It is the blessing and presence of the Spirit that makes our worship far more powerful than it appears to our physical eyes. Therefore, Beloved, this Pentecost Sunday and every Lord's Day in the years to come, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot, cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Spirit poured out on us that we might indeed be united to your Son. That our worship might indeed be a true and real 
participation in the worship of heaven that we might even now be dwelling before your face. We give you thanks for these mysteries, Father, and we pray that you would give us the faith to behold them, to cling to them, to these promises. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.